shouldn't be spending our time in a therapeutic session educating our counselor about our experiences. Normally I would have outdoor adventure and recreation as a coping mechanism when I was dealing with stress, but that was the very thing that was causing the stress. Trauma isn't what happens to you, it's what is experienced in the absence of an empathetic witness. What floored me was just the power of being in that community of people who understand. Hey, this is Kim Bennett. And this is Sydney Badger. And you are listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Brooke Shiny Edwards. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by Vissen Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. I am honored to be joining you once again as a guest host for this podcast, and I'm super excited to bring you a deep conversation with my dear friends, Sydney Badger and Kim Bennett from our neighbors over there in Canada. Sydney is a certified ski instructor, avalanche educator, and professional counselor, especially in what she calls adventure-informed therapy and somatic trauma therapy. She is especially passionate and shares some incredible insights into her knowledge of the nervous system and how it applies to our human factors in decision-making. Kim has been a longtime professional skier, heli ski guide, and most recently and passionately, a board member for the Canadian Peer Support Mental Health Network called Mountain Muskox. She's joined the Avalanche Hour podcast a couple seasons ago when she shared intimately a tragic avalanche fatality that she was involved with. We catch up with Kim to see how her own healing of stress injuries has led her down a passionate path of helping others in need. Join us for an incredible conversation, traversing all the ins and outs of mental health awareness, the literacy of loss, and the application of resilience tactics to help us get us through our winter season in one piece. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Athletic Greens. I've literally been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens every day since May, and it's helped me feel great. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I was tired of losing track of what vitamins and supplements I had already taken. I'd lose them all the time, I'd forget them at home. AG1 has made it super simple to have a sustainable nutritional insurance routine. I've been benefiting from taking AG1 by having better gut health, a more optimized immune system, more energy and focus, and better recovery. I've found it's the best option for easy, optimal nutrition out there. All I do is take one scoop of AG1, put it into 12 ounces of water, shake it up and drink it down, boom, I'm done in 30 seconds, and I'm hydrating. I benefit from absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. It's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. 
All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance that your body needs. Without further ado, I give you my conversation with these incredible Canadian women. Enjoy. Welcome, ladies. We have in the house with us today two Canadians. And it's always fun for me as an Alaskan to call my neighbors down south. So thank you so much for joining both of you and creating the time in your busy, busy schedules, juggling so many jobs. I really appreciate you taking the time to interview with me today. I was wondering if we could start off the interview with just letting the audience know who you are and how you came to find your way into the snow and avalanche world. Kim, what about you? Yeah, I'm Kim Vanette. I've been skiing professionally for about 12 years now. I live in Revelstoke, British Columbia. Um, I started out, I guess, competing in some freeride world tour qualifiers and then started to notice that when I traveled for skiing, I was leaving good pow and snow to go ski in icy hard pack. So I started doing more skiing around Revelstoke and that made me think I should do more backcountry skiing. And at that point, I started learning lots about avalanche risk assessment and snow science and all that good stuff. And I have been following that path for the last 10 years. And I guess, I find myself on the Avalanche podcast, Avalanche Hour podcast for the second time now. And that probably comes from the fact that I don't shy away from telling stories of vulnerability and mental health and opening up and opening conversations with people. So I'm glad to be back. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us once again, Kim. And for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to her first episode, check back to season five when she had a great conversation with Wes uh, regarding an avalanche fatality accident that she was involved in. And she was very candid explaining that accident and sharing a lot about her journey as a guide during that podcast. And what I hope to do today is to see where you've come in the couple years since then. But we'll get into that. So Sydney, what about you? How did you come to be in the snow and avalanche world? What was your journey to get here? Uh, well, first, I'll just say I came into this little world because of hearing Kim's interview and then cold called her and said, hi, do you want to be friends? Because I think we have lots of conversations to have. And so and I really did want to be her friend. And then we became up. friends. So here we are <laughs> together. The band is together again. <laughs> but no. Well, and actually. Actually, that's how all three of us became friends, right? right. Because yeah. after I, I was on the show, you all reached out to me via different channels and then the three of us became friends. So thank you, Avalanche Hour <laughs> Podcast, for the sisterhood of Shred. <laughs> I also saw you on a very adorable um av- av- uh, sorry, American Avalanche Association um panel with some mm-hmm. other wonderful ladies, mm-hmm. Brooke. And I think that that one really sealed the deal on you for me. I was like, okay, this babe needs to be my friend. Amen. And for <laughs> mine as well, after Kim introduced 
Brooke and I, then I happened to be like, oh, she has an interview on the Avalanche Hour too. And I listened to it on a drive. And I think as soon as I parked, I just pulled out Instagram and did a voice note saying like, so I think we need to take our relationship to the next level. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. So team, okay. And we... <laughs> And and we certainly have, and I know, I trust that this interview, you're not just going to hear us giving each other accolades about how awesome we all are as friends, <laughs> but you might hear a lot more of that too. But. I know you know we love each other and it's all real. <laughs> um, yeah, so my name is Sydney Badger. I came into the snow and avalanche world first through ski instructing. I have my father to thank for non-negotiable involvement in the CSIA and which is Canadian Ski Instructor Alliance. Um, I have taught skiing for a number of years and then ended up coaching women's camps out west. I'm from Ontario originally. And then started to get into backcountry skiing and the curiosity sort of had me tipping into the professional world and wondering if that was a world I wanted to get into. So after I did the Ops 1 course and started doing some practicums and thinking like, yeah, maybe this ski guide thing is for me. What happened is I started actually meeting a number of folks in the ski and avalanche industry who had some tough things going on in their lives that happened from their mountain experiences. And it sort of dawned on me that the skills I had to offer and the curiosities that I had were more centered on the human side of things. And so then I ended up going back to school for counseling and now see clients as uh, yeah, as a counselor virtually. And they're mostly folks who have had things go on in their wilderness experiences. So yeah, here for it. It's been a, it's been a journey. That's amazing. So I understand you have a private practice, the back to earth counseling, and you specialize in adventure informed therapy and trauma training as a somatic experiencing practitioner. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about like, what does adventure informed therapy mean? What's trauma training? What's somatic experiencing? What are those things? Yes, lots of things. Okay. So adventure informed therapy is just a a way that I'm speaking about it. And it's this notion that if we as adventure people are going to get help from people in the helping professions, that we should, it's okay to expect those people to have some literacy around our outdoor experience and also to expect it and that we shouldn't be spending our time in a therapeutic session, educating our counselor about our experiences. So yeah, it's helpful when we have outdoor folks who become counselors because we're already on so much of the same page. Um, somatic experiencing is a trauma resolution technique, tactic, um, developed by a man named Peter Levine. It changed my life after some other personal and incident traumas. And so I thought, all right, we're going to pull somatic experiencing into adventure folks therapy and see what happens. And what was the third thing? <laughs> oh, just, I think it was a combination. It was the trauma training right. through somatic experiencing. And I can attest to the somatic therapeutic experience after I realized I was stress injured. I did do that type of therapy and really found that for somebody involved in adventure, like working through those emotions and that stress that was occurring in my body was so helpful to do it in a therapy that was designed for that. You brought up a 
a term that I feel like is also a, a theme that ties our friendship together in our conversations and our passion around mental health in our industry, and that was literacy. Kim, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the term literacy in in that relation to mental health, and then just like what even brought you into that intersection with mental health? Yeah, good question, the way that that was phrased. So when I, I mean, I had some backlash from my own involvement in a mountain trauma, um, which sort of reverberated through a lot of my life. Um, skiing has obviously been really important to me in the last decade. And I found myself, <clears throat> excuse me, I found myself afraid to go out and do the types of things that I had normally done up until that point. And so normally I would have outdoor adventure and recreation as a coping mechanism when I was dealing with stress, but that was the very thing that was causing the stress. Um, so it caused me to ha struggle with my own identity at that point in my life and also make me want to learn more about backcountry skiing, which at the time there weren't a ton of backcountry style camps and courses the way that there are now. Um, so I went into ski guiding sort of for lack of a better education. <laughs> and then I did fall in love with ski guiding. I love spending time with guests. I love spending time, like the best day of somebody's life with them um, and empowering them to do things that they couldn't do without me. So I became really passionate about that. But while I was going through the guide training process, I found myself faced with other avalanche professionals who had experienced trauma in their lives, but it was very much still a part of how they live their lives. Um, and it was from my observation, I saw in them a lot of things that I had felt in myself and that I'd gone through a lot of therapy to I'll use the word rectify for myself. For for me, I felt like I needed to change that and fix it, so to speak. Um, so after having experienced such a positive healing change, um, it became really important to me to help others at least identify whether or not they wanted to go after that same type of experience. Because um, I mean, if you don't want to, that's totally fine too. But I did realize there were a lot of people out there who were struggling with something and didn't know how to even observe it in themselves. Um, so I've had a lot of conversations. Anytime the subject comes up, I uh, usually end up speaking with people who become quite passionate about it, like our friendships here. Um, and there's other people in other circles that overlap. My, all of those circles are overlapping more and more these days. Um, and I think the biggest thing is that there are a lot of different ways, a lot of modalities to deal with trauma recovery um, and just a lot of different communities that could benefit from coming together and sharing skills and sharing experiences. So trauma literacy to me has become a tool um, to understand how to get the tools, right? Because I think we're at the point where we haven't even identified exactly what the problem is and, and what the pathway is. So that's so true. I feel like you brought up Peter Levine, Sydney, and he has a quote that I recently read that was super cool. And it was that trauma isn't what happens to you. It's 
what is experienced in the absence of an empathetic witness. And I, that, that resonated so that much. That was my experience. Absence of F- empathetic witnesses has been my experience in ski guiding. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's what made me realize it is I, I think in that form of literacy is, is like when we, I didn't really know what trauma was or what it was defined as. I thought like, oh, it certainly hasn't happened to me because I haven't had that like one significant event that I could like cry victim on. But yet I had had this like chronic, chronic overlay of so many events throughout my life that I realized, oh, I've been traumatized over and over again. And once I saw that definition, that resonated completely. I was like, oh, that actually describes multiple instances of my entire ski guiding career, my career as an avalanche professional, my experience within this industry. So I knew that it would resonate with you, Kim, for sure. (laughs) And Sydney as well. Um, And then back to the literacy thing is just, I wonder if you two could speak, either one of you can feel this is, we brainchilded just this idea of like the literacy of loss. And we started this like project out there. And I was wondering if either one of you would want to take that ball and run with it. Sid? Sure. Um, Well, I was lucky enough to be invited to the literacy of loss party. And the kinds of fun things happening there was just really getting an understanding from different players in the industry of what they feel needs to be brought to the table. And I think that even just that question is such an important part of leading us towards literacy of loss and recognizing that there are so many different angles that we can head towards this center from. There are so many facets to supporting ourselves, our communities, to supporting the industry and really just wrapping our heads around who are those people and how are they involved so that we can start, start to even understand what we're trying to build and what we are trying to give and what are the tools that we need to offer? Well, where do we even start? So I think it was really more questions than answers, but just to ignite this fire that, Hey, we have an important question here and we have a community who's willing to ask it together. What was your impression of it, Kim? Um, I'm not sure in direct answer to that question, but while you were speaking, one thing that was coming up for me is this, um, that Brooke and I put people together. We're good at connecting people and don't have professional training in therapy of any sort. Um, and so, and also I can't help but say, Sydney, that you always have a tendency to downplay your amazing power and knowledge and ability to contextualize and say all the things that I'm usually trying to say. Um, So it was interesting in that project, in that conversation that we had, we just brought brought together a bunch of people in the industry to talk about where um, mental health concerns or pressures or any sort of awareness around mental health is coming up. So for industry associations, that's coming from their members, you know, I'm working with a not-for-profit called Mountain Muskox, and we have people reaching out to us constantly, almost on a daily basis, uh, asking for help in forming a community surrounding some incidents that they've been involved in. 
Um, and that's really bringing the industry together as well, which is super, super cool because we've started a thing and created a thing. And so now more and more folks are just getting involved. And um, the reason that I brought up the fact that Brooke and I connect people is that's where it started for us. It didn't start from any sort of sense of we're really amazing at this. We're just picking people from the crowd and and like we all met in this situation from reaching out to each other through Instagram after podcasts and things like that, right? So if these types of conversations resonate with anyone, part of what we're building right now is togetherness and community and bringing skill sets together. So um, the Literacy of Loss program was sort of directed towards bringing all of those industry members who we knew together at the time. So we started a really good conversation about collaboration rather than this like siloed approach. Cause that's sort of what we were all dealing with in traumatic experience anyways, is that loneliness. So um, yeah. Well, and I think what came from that too, is like this excitement of, of that there are so many organizations. A3 is, has their resiliency program. The AMGA is working on their resiliency program there's the grief fund from the climbing side of things. Responder Alliance is very active and is helping ski patrols around the nation build their resilience teams. So what we wanted our goal to be was to not have exactly what you said, Kim, not have all these people working with their heads down, thinking that they're the only ones biting off this huge like piece, massive piece of the puzzle alone, it's that we're all doing as a team. And you brought up Mountain Muskox. I'm so glad you did because you both recently just attended a training, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, Sydney, was what was you? Were you? The, yeah, sorry. It was officially called the unintensive. First it was an intensive and then it became an unintensive, which was beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Can you describe what happened there and where Mountain muskox is going maybe a little bit what more people should know about the mountain muskox yeah i mean i'll speak to it a little bit kim should definitely add in but i can speak to my experience at least which was just a coming together of folks from really far and wide people traveled to come to this gathering that ended up being 30 or so people in a circle and what floored me was just the power of being in that community of people who understand and the number of times that the phrase not alone was used, that people just wanted to be feeling in that community. And, you know, out of respect to the circle and the confidentiality we agreed to there, not too much more to say, but just that it really is powerful to have a gathering space. It's powerful to have tools illustrated and it's really powerful to have folks witnessing how does that tool land for me? How does it land for you? What is it triggering for me? How am I safe enough to share what that trigger is? Hey, I kind of fumbled on that thing. And I really think that's some of the beauty of this trauma and healing recovery conversation that we're having is being in a safe enough place to do it not at all perfectly and just treat it all as tools that are options that we're like, Hey, see how it goes, move on to the next. That was kind of funny. Like the laughter doses were also crucial. (laughs) So yeah, um, my experience of it was just feeling very, very much having arrived into a community that I absolutely will continue being part of. But Kim, you've been more directly involved. So 
over to you. Yeah. I mean, I like that you brought up that concept of perfectionism, right? I mean, it's, it's been an imperfect growing model that we followed. Um, we've had mistakes at times and we've had successes and we're consistently evolving and listening and trying to center ourselves around creating community. And, um, at this point we're trying to structure our meetings so that we can do this in more towns than just in the Bow Valley and Revelstoke that we've done so far. We want to be able to reach more people and we've definitely had people inquiring about it. So we're, we're looking to shift our programming a little bit so that again, folks can be involved with mountain muskogs rather than create something that's exactly the same elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I guess to come back to what it is, it's, community building it's having a space to share and talk about what's going on for you how your recovery is going or not going um and really there's this unspoken sort of communication i've never been able to really put my finger on how badly i guess my accident had made me feel at times um and it's a really difficult thing to explain to people um, and I think that's why I always just felt this disconnect between ski guides who were trying to get me to perform at my, at my best. And I was trying to get myself to perform at my best, but there was a lack or a disconnect in my ability to perform because of my self-protection mechanisms and all the things that were trying to keep me safe from the thing that was so scary that I had experienced. Right. And so trying to put your hand there, trying to put that into words is next to impossible. So when you get in a room with people that understand without speaking those words, um, there's real magic in that. And it, it does create that sense of, of togetherness. Whereas that exact feeling had created so much exclusion for me up until that point. Hmm. So is it a peer support network that connect uh, Canada, Canada, <laughs> our friends in Canada are willing to export to us Americans? Is it yeah, a model like sure. Mountain Muskox goes glo global even? <laughs> and our next chapter will actually be in Montana and Missoula um, and hopefully out on the coast in British Columbia as well. But yeah, absolutely. We've gotten requests from Europe and yeah, elsewhere as well. So. That's so exciting. And would you see it fitting in with going hand in hand with other programs that people would be involved in, say like if... If I had a chapter in my town, which I hope to have one day, that I would also use other tools from the toolbox in partnership with that peer support yeah. network. I mean, ideally, in the future, we'll all sort of be there for each other in that way. So if you're in a mountain community, you can know that this group of humans exists and that you do have a safe space. And what we're working on right now is creating that container and creating that ability to hopefully in the future be able to pop in and be a part of something and uh, make that available to as many humans as possible. So it's a big job and it's volunteer as of right now. So anyone who wants to help or support us financially, I'm on the board of directors. It's not going to me. It's going to the organization. And That's awesome. I don't know if you... 
um, both are feeling this, but I feel like we're at this tipping point right now in society where we've typically been completely biased towards physical health, right? Is from the time we're little kids, we know how to take care of our physical beings, but we don't know anything about our mental beings or how to take care of our mental wellness. It's not a term that we hear our parents talk about necessarily. It's not a term we hear our peers talk about. And even the opposite, quite, is we hear a lot of people shaming the idea of simple mental health issues as simple as depression or anxiety or stress injury. And do you see that shift starting to happen in society, either in Canada or around you in the towns that you're operating in, or even in the avalanche and snow world? I would say for sure in the avalanche and snow world, like we're on this wave that is cresting of awareness and conversation that is so important. And of course, in the broader world, uh, that's happening as well. But personally, what I think is so exciting about this stigma being removed from talking about mental health is it's happening at a very, it's coinciding with a very exciting time where mental health is also being understood through the lens of nervous system regulation and that's my soapbox. So happily to sh- happy to share on that. But it's just, yeah, and it's an exciting time for both of those conversations to evolve. Because when we can get in touch with this notion that we are these very intelligent mammals who are wired to protect ourselves, all of a sudden, it takes so much of the stigma away, even just in that in knowing that our behavior is coming from something that's trying to protect us. And that the more that we can be empowered with that knowledge, the more that we can heal from the things that ail us. And I think not just that we're in an exciting time of mental health being more accepted and more part of the common lexicon, but also mental health is at a very exciting point too. Oh my gosh. I want to keep following through with this because this is one of your specialties And I know that you mentioned at one point that you've facilitated avalanche education through a nervous system lens. That just sounds fascinating to me. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, So the first part is being a practicum in Canada means like you're basically an intern that's just volunteering to support various things that a guide or avalanche educator is running. And so I have the ticket to do that. I'm, I'm like in the background and happily going, hey, but if we could just talk a little bit about the human factor from this perspective of nervous system regulation. And luckily, I've had uh, some folks, including my partner, Dave Cly, who, you know, is a wonderful human that we ran an AST2 together, and we were able to, to tag team it both as partners and as co-educators. And what was so powerful of that is having these conversations at the end of the course, where we talk about, well, how do our defense mechanisms actually prevent us from having the important conversations around the decisions that we're making in the backcountry? And how do our protective mechanisms make us not think clearly? Where can that step into the equation so that we're actually, we need to talk about how we are functioning physiologically in relationship to our capacity to manage risk, that those two things are interconnected. We can't do anything about it. So we might as well understand it. Let's pull that one apart a little bit more. (laughs) The thing that most people ask about is like, I mean, having even having such simple awareness of our breath can be a really powerful tool in the mountains, right? I mean, if we 
don't realize, I mean, we hold our breath when we're stressed out first and foremost. And if we're not aware of that type of thing, then that can lead to sort of spiraling decision-making, but talk a little bit, Sid, talk a little bit about nervous system regulation. Cause I love it when you open this up. Cause I think when people start to understand that their bodies are doing things they can't control, then the awareness of what their body is doing can bring them back to a place they can control. Mm. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. So I'm, I'll start, I'll start at my start and you feel free to redirect it. But my favorite way to frame this is just this awareness that we are, we're herd animals that depend on the safety of our group for the safety of the individual. And so what actually happens is when we look to other people, whether that's our family or our friends or the party that we happen to be ski touring with, that we read safety from other people's read of safety. And that basic concept is called co-regulation. So if you're having a freak out, I'm going to look to you and I'm either going to stay grounded for the team or I'm going to go, oh, you're having a freak out. Does that mean I should have a freak out? Picture like a herd of deer that, not a herd, a herd of ungulates where one would look and say, oh, there might be a threat over there. And then all of the ears and eyes perk up and look into that direction. That's how we are as humans too. And so to hold down the fort as an individual really means recognizing A, that we're impacted by everyone around us and B, that that original wiring, our original sort of trigger switch is impacted by our development from early childhood onwards. And so as soon as we can sort of take a bit of the, um, the blame or this perception that there's fault for someone's behavior, oh, I'm just not good at doing the thing or I crumble under pressure, these reactions are automatic. So it's not our fault. And when we can learn that to recognize the signs in our own bodies and our own behaviors of when we're becoming dysregulated, that itself can be a great clue of, hey, maybe we should slow down and take a look at what's happening because I now recognize that I'm not arriving here from a regulated place. So take the example for a guide, for instance, because this is the story of where I was at in my own fight or flight uh, situation the last couple of years where I was stuck in that modality from all my trauma and and yet I was the guide who had to hold space while clients could be freaked out because they're on the steepest line of their life or they're just scared in avalanche terrain. And so even though my whole system wanted to be the deer that also join them as a guide, we really all of a sudden have to to be that solid grounded individual. And like, if that's not happening within that guide, within that person who is supposed to be the grounded one, what tools can they employ to get them into that grounded space so that they can be the leader? Kim, I think you have an idea on this. Well, I would say before even going towards the tool as an individual, like what can you use as a tool as an individual, come back to that herd mentality, right? Is like um, a single individual not being able to empower themselves and use their tools, use the skills that they've been taught. So I'm going to use myself as an example in my guide training. I've certainly had situations where I knew how to do certain skills, um, but under certain pressures, wasn't able to access those the same way as I was when my stress was low. 
And so what I really craved in those moments was that empathetic ear you were talking about before, where people could not necessarily make an excuse for me. And, you know, I certainly believe you have to be at your best, especially when keeping people safe in the mountains. Um, but I think the really excellent instructors and mentors in our industry are those who can recognize that in people, help co-regulate those people so that those folks can perform as best that they can, even in a stressful situation. Um, so going back to the literacy of loss project there, that was always a huge disconnect for me because, you know, on one hand, Sid said, it's not our fault that we have these, rec these uh, reactions. But for me, when I hear it's not my fault, I'm like, mm, I don't know, it's my fault. Like I always blame myself. And because I've had a lot of my uh, superiors in the guiding industry actually blame me, actually tell me I'm not good enough, actually tell me I'm not strong enough, actually tell me that I'm not whatever enough to be a ski guide. But fundamentally, I'm actually really good at a lot of the soft skills. Um, and I've seen so many folks, not just myself, but throughout the examination process more than anything, who are exceedingly good at those soft skills, but because they haven't learned that regulation under pressure and turning those hard skills into performance on snow, there's then they leave the industry entirely. So I think we've lost some really incredible guides because they just didn't have that nurture in that space of regulation. That's my personal opinion on it. But I mean, to me, it seems like it's so obvious. Oh, I totally agree. And what's fascinating is that I've been learning so much working with Responder Alliance and we teach psychological first aid at, at Responder Alliance. And one of the things, say, if you come onto a scene and it's an avalanche and you're dealing with the onlookers, so there's already rescuers dealing with people on scene. And we've determined that there also needs to be rescuers dealing with the psychological first response for those onlookers. And a couple of the things that we do is breathe with them, calm them down, get them to co-regulate, slow our speech down, connect with them as a human. So all those soft skills that you're highlighting right now, Kim, become absolutely integral to providing quality psychological first aid in the field in a rescue situation. And I would argue would be just as important as beacon skills and the ability to dig up because both parties going in, say the three of us all go in on a rescue and the two of you are digging somebody out of the snow and and I focus on the, the people left behind. That's equally as important because I'm stopping their stress injury from formation and you all are doing the physical health side of the equation. And yet I would argue that the mental health side of the equation is equally important. And I, I think that's what I hear you saying, Kim, that we're, we've been lacking that in, in our industry typically just as the way the industry evolved. And yet it's like the slow turn as we become more literate and are able to use terms like psychological first aid or talk about our nervous system with each other, right? Or even use that stress continuum that the Responder Alliance that Laura McGladry introduced of the colors. I think it would be great even if we knew what colors meant and I could come to you too on a ski date that we had and say, 
hey, y'all, can you just my I'm feeling a little bit in the orange today. Can you just look out for me a little bit more? And that the two of you would know exactly what that meant. We we would do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah, that feels like a normal chairlift conversation for me. but when you well, we were, want to make uh, it normal for everybody, right? Yeah, do it. Sure. Um, when you were talking about that, what comes up for me too is, okay, it's cute to say everyone feels great, but let's also take this one step further and look at it from the performance lens. And I don't know, Sydney, if you want to talk a little bit more about how that converts to being able to bring your best self to not only rescue scenarios, but also like sports, athletics, like good times with your buds, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And it's all about being in, in capacity and having the bandwidth and the fact that when we are under too much stress or chronic stress or coming off of stress injury, that, that, uh, I mean, the jargony way would be looking at our window of tolerance, that our window of tolerance actually becomes a lot smaller of a window, but then we can actually work on our capacity in the nervous system to tolerate stress and to regulate under higher instances of stress, even if that's just the stress of a competition, then or the stress of an exam, that our, our performance is higher, because we can still be fully embodied in the experience that we're engaging in. And it's like, these are superpowers, why don't we learn them and teach them as preventative measures as high performance measures, not just everything went wrong and now we're on recovery mode. This could be something that we think about ahead of time. I actually had a mentor of mine um, when I was having issues with exam stress. I actually, I was having issues with exam stress in relation to flashbacks to incident, right? So, I mean, it didn't come out of nowhere. And we were chatting about the hard skill that I was being examined on at the time. And, and he had said that for me at that time, that was my emergency. So I sort of got the, the luxury of self-sabotage in that space. However, if it was not an exam scenario and you two needed my help, I wouldn't have that luxury of self-sabotage. I wouldn't be able to do those things to stop myself and protect myself because I would be more motivated to care for your well-being because it really didn't have anything to do with me at that point, right? So the exam is also a weird construct because it becomes so stressful on the rescuer, but in the act like in the accident response, I mean, I would never ever be thinking about myself consciously or subconsciously. All of my energy and effort would be going to the task at hand. Well, and can I add to that, that like, that's just it in the response, even having the awareness on board because of doing some of this work prior to, and being able to arrive on scene. I mean, I've heard this anecdote from someone in the industry and being able to really let out whatever needed to be let out, which probably has something to do with horror to, to have space for that also helps prevent the stress injury, knowing that, you know, there needs to be some sort of primal reaction to the thing and not stifling that down is preventative to future health complications. And whether that's the person who is first responder or to the people who are, you know, as we're speaking to earlier, these other layers of support or the people who are around, like everyone in that bubble deserves some grounding, some regulation, like things can go astray for 
even the people at home when they hear that story. And I think recognizing that that trickle, that domino effect is real, that we don't need to be at the epicenter of a thing for it to have an impact on us is another part of this literacy of loss that we're so keen to make sure folks feel validated by. Definitely. And that was big learning for me to know that the people who receive the phone call, the people who hear the story can be just as impacted as the person with the shovel in their hand. Certainly. I'm wondering, just because you brought up preventative meds, I, I want to go st- take a step back. But before I do, Kim, it looked like you had something else to add. I was just thinking sort of on that topic. Um, now, the more that I'm learning about how we impact other folks, I'm seeing how me telling my story, even within the Avalanche Hour podcast episode that I did before, knowing what I know now, I'm not sure I would tell that story the same way. Um, I actually meant to listen to it before we did this podcast, just so I could talk in more detail about it. Um, Did not have the time to do that. But what I've noticed in my recreational time is that when stories come up around me, I'm like very triggered by them from time to time. Um, But I don't think anything's changed other than my awareness around it. Right. So now I can take the space and and choose to be involved in the conversation or choose to get out of the conversation. But I've been certainly in situations in the past where I didn't have the awareness. So I didn't have the choice or further than that, I was involved in a guides meeting, for example, and someone was doing something that was very, very triggering towards me. And I didn't have any sort of knowledge, um, awareness. I just trusted that the people who were supposed authorities of mine knew the things that I may or may not have. Anyways, it's just fascinating for me to see how we really affect one another and, and how much we can teach someone else to be triggered or or to be defensive without them even having experienced the thing. Yeah. I I think again, that, that brings me back to the same question of prevention. So we've spoken so much about what happens once there is an incident and what the trauma that can or cannot occur during that incident and everybody, all the fallout from that. So I wonder if either one of you or both of you could speak to what what things can we do to build up our resilience? What things can we do? Just like we train in the off season, we do our squats and our lunges to get strong for ski season. What can we do both in preparation for a guiding season ahead, as well as maintenance during the whole season, even if nothing bad is happening around us and we just want to maintain a desired level of resilience that would enable us to um, be good performers should um, caca happen to hit the fan? (laughs) Um, I can speak a bit to, yeah, to this, where the first thing that comes to mind is um, helping teach our nervous systems how to downregulate, how to go from a a zone of fight, flight, fawn, freeze, sometimes that become such a recognizable place that we just hang out there and plow through life through a season from this place of compensation. And so to recognize well before a season, what that looks like for us and getting to know our own experience of, Hey, when I'm a little bit too activated, 
how does that manifest? How am I acting? How am I communicating with my closest people? What are my coping mechanisms that prevent me from actually feeling the feels that are trying to bring themselves to the surface? And then, you know, with help or with resources or in community, you know, whatever is accessible is to then find ways to teach our nervous systems to come out of that. And just as building up any other muscle, we can do reps of down-regulating. We can do reps of activate, deactivate. And it's the more that we can teach our system how to deactivate or just come down even a little bit, even just a little less than full tilt spicy is great. And yeah, it's building a new neural pathway. It's building a new automatic reaction in the nervous system that then can serve us when things go a little caca. And I would add to that as well. The, the first thing that came up for me is having having your crew and like knowing that you have a few people in your life and they don't have to be your partners on snow, but like your, your partners in life, your friends and family, having a few people that know you well enough to be able to spot some of those symptoms in you before you can. Um, in my experience, I wasn't able to see a lot of my own symptoms, um, but people who were around me might've had more clarity there. And so that actually requires a little bit of dropping your ego and listening to them and and not taking it as an accusation, but taking it as a consideration that maybe it is time to do some of that down regulation that Sid's talking about. It certainly seems like it would help our, even our interpersonal relationships as well, right? As if we could sit down together with your friends or family or significant other and make a list even of like things that trigger you or activate you or stress you out and then things that work to calm you down, whether it's meditation, breath, uh, human connection, a good night's rest, and make those lists ahead of time so that then our active support people around our inner circle could hold up that mirror for us in that moment, perhaps, and be that gentle reminder to Kim, I need you to take a breath. Why don't we just step away for a second and breathe together? Yeah, what I wanted to add to that is uh, building a team, also including being open to building a team of professionals, or even just one professional that you know, you can call that you can build a rapport with before things go sideways. And, you know, not to be ignorant that not everyone has access to that. There are barriers, but there's also a lot out there that's possible. And, you know, a lot more companies are doing well to support their staff. And I would say just don't don't hoard your sessions, you know, book a session and find someone who works for you ahead of the game an interview of couple folks ahead of the game so that you know you've got them. And it's like we train for everything else in a preventative way. What's with not having that training on board? You know, go to a physio or doing strength and performance coaching and all of this stuff. But like, what if we just looked at it as nervous system coaching, then we might be a little bit better off. That's awesome, which I think leads me to like a great wrap up question for you both is what would the dream be that you would love to see happen either in your careers or in our ski, snow and avalanche community of seeing that intersection of mental wellness and snow and avalanche world? I think for me anyways, so much emphasis in our in our ski society anyways is placed upon um 
you know, these really high achieving events, right? Whether they're certifications or peaks to climb, first ascents, first descents, all that sort of stuff. Um, and there's certainly a time and a place for that. But I think if we could celebrate the normal stuff, we'd get to those peaks and those exceptional moments more often. Um, and so for me, I'm really trying to balance having the motivation to do those like really outrageous goals, like lofty goals from time to time, but really um, finding the peace and satisfaction in all the times that it doesn't quite go that way. Because I mean, ultimately for me, skiing and, and being in the mountains is about connection with our planet and connection with each other and connection with myself. And so when I'm constantly distracted by that objective, that's not where my feet are, <laughs> it doesn't allow me that connection that I was out there for to begin with. So, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's like 95% of the time or more for me, I, I'm not going after those big moments. And, you know, I think we then post on Instagram and we do all this sort of stuff where it makes it seem like we're achieving that stuff every single day. And I mean, I'm so thrilled if I get five pow turns in a day and hey, guess what? That's what goes on Instagram, folks. But there's a lot of the rest of the day that exists too, right? Um, and I found I've been able to achieve those lofty goals more often because I'm a little bit more regulated because I'm using the mountains for the, their once intended purpose anyway. I love that. I have a friend and colleague, Joe Stock, here in Alaska, who shared a few years ago that at some point in his career, he stopped celebrating the summits and he started celebrating his the times he turned around. And he gave himself more kudos and more celebration and chose to talk about it more. And I love that. I That resonated so much with me and I've carried that forward in the way I look at the world. And I think we should all take a little bit of piece of that pie and say, let's celebrate the times that we chose to turn around. I love that too. And I love how that can tie into so well, this building a better understanding of ourselves and building a better, a more usable jargon and language in our communities around all of this stuff, which would be my dream is like for us, I mean, we're doing it right now. We can sit and talk about regulation and dysregulation and co-regulation and being too activated and trauma and triggers. And it's happening. We're all getting better at talking about this. And the better that we are at talking about this because we put intention into having a shared language, the more that we can be at that decision point and acknowledge, well, what I'm noticing in my system is this, feeling a little activated. I don't know if this decision is coming from a good place. Maybe we should turn around and call it. Even in that situation, like that's where the the avalanche education and the nervous system regulation can overlap. And for me, the big dream is just seeing seeing a ski industry where we are just as stoked to talk in those words as we are for the many different ways that we talk about snow. If we could expand that lingo and be thrilled about it and even make it a little bit cool that like the in the know of talking nervous system ish, I mean, I think we'd be doing really well. <laughs> 
I love it. Let's make nervous system talk cool. I love it. <laughs> so ladies, I think that my dream in the future is to run a retreat with the three of us in the mountains that we invite a whole bunch of people to, to get down and funky with nervous system regulation <laughs> and skiing some pow, meadow skipping some powder. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. I want to thank you both for taking the time to be so vulnerable and candid and aware and share all your thoughts on the intersection of mental wellness in our snow and avalanche community. Thank you for joining us here today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. Take care and be safe out there the rest of your season. You too. Wow, such a beautiful conversation with Kim and Sydney. Thank you, ladies. If you're interested or need any of the resources mentioned in this show, like Responder Alliance, we've provided links to all of them in our show notes. So head on over there and check those out. If you want to know more about the, the Sisters of Shred, you can follow Kim on Instagram at Kim underscore Vanette and Sydney at hers back.to.earth.counseling. That's back to earth counseling. And while you're at it, you can go ahead and give the Avalanche Hour podcast a follow too. You can also find us on Facebook, or if you'd like to give us any feedback at all, go ahead and send us an email at the Avalanche Hour podcast at gmail.com. Music for this episode was provided by Ketza, found at ketza.uk, and artwork was supplied by Mike T, who you can find at MikeT.com. I want to give a huge shout out of gratitude to Caleb Merrill. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks also for inviting me to guest host. Well, I think that that wraps it up. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and remember, you're not alone. <laughs>